Uh, before I sort of get into this, the message today, I have two notes. One is it's encouraging as, oh, by the way, my name is Gary Cook. I'm one of the overseers at Lakeview. Um, and I have the opportunity to share the message today. So that's exciting, I hope. Um, two things before I start the message. One is, as an overseer, it's really encouraging to me that the, the, the people at Lakeview are obeying God's command, be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> so that's really encouraging. The second is, it's a mental note. When Andy gives the, gives the um, announcements, make sure he does it after your sermon. Because <laughs> you lose all the time that you have to use the sermon. That said... Um, we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. So I only have four, four verses, actually five verses. So that's okay for a long, long announcement time period. Um, I'd like to give a little background um, to where we're going to be at in, in Matthew chapter 8. So let's kind of cover where, where Jesus has been before we are at the passage that we're going to be looking at. The first thing, um, Jesus completes the Sermon on the Mount. Recall, and we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time at Lakeview, um, Jesus was near a city called Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and he gave a sermon on the hills overlooking uh, the city of, or the town of Capernaum and, and the entire um, um, uh, lake that he was, he was uh, teaching at, the Sea of Galilee. And chapter, or Matthew chapter 5 through 7 talk about um, the Sermon on the Mount, and actually, I think some of the things that we'll be looking at as we see this, today's passage reflect back at the Sermon on the Mount. So he's done with the Sermon on the Mount, and he comes walking down the mountain. And as he walks down the mountain, likely with a bunch of people around him, um, he began calling his disciples. So Peter and James and John and Andrew had been called by Jesus and were following him. And as he was going down the mountain, he's confronted by a leper. Actually, a leper comes in front of him and asks him if he's willing, could he heal him? And he does. And Jesus continues on and he goes into the town of Capernaum and he, he meets a centurion, a Roman military officer who is very likely the, the centurion for the town of Capernaum. And the centurion, who's, who's not a Jew, asked him a favor. Could he heal his servant? Likely this this centurion had heard of all the things that Jesus was doing, how he was healing people, how people were getting changed by being near him, and he wanted his servant, who he loved, to be healed. And Jesus started walking um, to follow this man, and, and, this, and the centurion said, no, 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 D- don't follow me, because he knew in Jesus' day, if a Jew was to go into the house of a Gentile, they would be unclean. And he did not want that to happen to Jesus. He did not want to place this man in that situation. So he said, no, I'm a man under authority. And if I tell a soldier to go, he goes. If I tell a soldier to come, he comes. All you need to do, Lord, is to say he's healed and he's healed. And Jesus marvels that this Gentile has such faith. And he says, I've not seen such faith in Israel. And so he comes into the town of Capernaum and he goes into Peter's home, one of now the men who were following him. And as he goes into his home, he finds out that Peter's mother-in-law is ill. 
And so he heals her. And clear and surely as he is in Peter's home, word comes around in the, in the city of Capernaum and the surrounding areas that Jesus is here and he's healing people. And that evening, lots of people come to be healed and to have demons cast out. And he likely spends the night um, at Peter's house and prepares to move on. And in today's passage, which we'll be reading shortly, we hear about two men's encounters with Jesus. Um, Two men who wanted to follow him. So let's first read about this first encounter. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 20. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Likely, um, he might have spent a couple days in Capernaum, and now he was preparing to move on to another city to continue preaching the word, sharing the gospel. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's a weird thing to say. What's behind that? Well, I think in under, trying to understand what's behind that, let's, let's understand a little bit about, you notice there it says a scribe. Well, what's a scribe? What were the scribes? In the book of Matthew, the word scribe, and if we can go to the next slide, the, the um, Greek word of that is grammateus, and it's from the base of that word, uh, that word is grammar, which we get grammar from, so the linguist here is happy. One, I get to use a a Greek word, and second, we get to talk about grammar. (laughs) But these were men who studied the word of God. These were men who were deeply enmeshed in what God's word was about, the law and the prophets. Um, The roles of the scribe, and and as I said, in in the book of uh, Matthew, these these men, the word scribe is used 21 times, and it's often connected either with priests or with Pharisees. So they were among the people, the leaders of the Jewish people who supported and taught um, the the people. The first thing that scribes did is they were curators of the text. Now, this is in the first century AD. The printing press wasn't invented until the 14th century. And so somehow people had to reproduce the text in such a way to make sure that, that it, was, it was whole. If you, if you look at and read about the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find, which were, we think the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls was written probably in the first or second century B.C., we find now, when we look at the Hebrew Bible now and look at that text, it's almost identical. The, the degree to which these men copied and made sure that the word of God was whole and true is amazing. Uh, you may not know this, but Greek and Hebrew don't have numbers. Did you know that? The numbers were the letters. So you, we have Roman numerals. Well, the same thing is true in Hebrew. And what a scribe would do is when they would transcribe, actually going the wrong way, when they would transcribe the, the law, they would count the value. They would sum up the value of a line just to make sure not only that the words were correct, but when you added up the numbers, it was correct. These men knew God's word. And so because they were so detailed in copying the, 
the, God's word. They were curators of the text. They became interpreters of the law. They shared how to understand what God had written in the law. They also became teachers and had many, many students. Um, well, some of uh, the Pharisees' um, theological perspectives were, were created by scribes. Scribes didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily a Pharisee or a Sadducee. They, were, they came from all, all walks of life. And they had students. And they lived off, often, the, the, the proceeds of their students. They were also guardians of tradition. Now, the, as I said, these men copied the law in an amazing way, an amazingly accurate way. But there are things in the law that weren't detailed. For example, it says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? That's one of the commandments. And it, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. The Bible doesn't really give a clear definition of what work was. How, what's work mean? So they didn't, because they honored the scriptures so much, they would not write down a definition of work. They would have an oral tradition about what work meant. And they would have these long lists of traditions that you follow the law and this is what you do. Another example is you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and they believed if you carried something, you were working. So you couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. So to get around it, they actually, in their cloaks, had little pockets, and they just put things in it, and they could carry something, but they're not actually carrying it. These kinds of traditions, oral traditions, are the things that Jesus was, was, was having a problem with. Now, the scribes, as I said, came from priestly aristocracy. They came from the, priest, from the clergy, but most of the, of the scribes were from everyday life, and they lived by the gifts of their students. So this scribe was impressed by, must have, he must have listened to the Sermon on the Mount. Because in, in Matthew chapter 7, um, we read, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, scribes didn't really say, this is what God meant. They said, Rabbi X said this, and Rabbi Y said that. And so we think it might be this. They, they really didn't say that, you know, this is what God meant. Jesus did. And it impressed the scribe. And, and he said, teacher, I, wa- I want to follow you wherever you go. And I think Jesus came, uh, responded to him, are you, are you sure you know what you're asking me? In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, it seems that this scribe might have been interested in in seeing this great teacher who is having and communicating clearly from God, he would be very influential himself. His students could grow. He could really move as a scribe and be very popular. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. There is a cost to following me. There is, there is, a, there is a price to pay. And I'm, I was looking and thinking about, well, what, what can I, is there a contemporary 
um, example of what, what that might mean. And although it's not exactly contemporary, um, next is a picture of, of two people. Um, on the right is Jim Elliot. On the left is Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot was a rising star at Wheaton College in the early 1950s, the same time that folks like Billy Graham was, was coming around. He was passionate. He was articulate. He was a wonderful writer. Many felt he was destined for the pulpit and would be a great doctor of the faith, a p- preacher and pastor above all else. And as a couple, Jim and Elizabeth would greatly influence the church. So I think several of his professors were surprised when Jim decided not to go into the ministry as a teacher or preacher, but as a missionary. And not only as a missionary, in a missionary to a place in South America called Ecuador, where most Americans at that time had never heard of. You see, the Elliots and four other couples wanted to reach unreached peoples. That was the, the, the goal that God had laid on their hearts. They believed that God was leading them to reach out to the Alka Indians. The Alka Indians were quite a violent group. Um, and they were doing this through an organization called Mission Aviation Fellowship, and I'll explain a little bit why Mission Aviation Fellowship was the place that they did that. You see, you couldn't directly contact the Alcas. The Alcas um, had many missionaries, Catholic missionaries, and a hundred years earlier had tried to connect with them in their area, and they had died. They were very violent people. The tribes around the Alca Indians were, um, were, were just warning everybody to stay away. Um, the shell, shell, uh, shell oil was trying to sur- was searching for, for oil in the area, and their, their um, employees got too close to the Alka's land, and some of them died. So this was a group of people that did not like whites and did not like to be bothered. Yet these men and women felt that God was calling them to reach out and share the gospel with them. Well, how would you do that if you get in their territory and they're going to kill you? They had an ingenious strategy. What they did is they would fly a plane. Actually, the, the pilot, his name is Nate Saint, he, he invented a, a process where he would circle his plane in the air. He would drop down um, a bucket from a rope. They were so high and the bucket was so far that when it would get down to the ground on, by the river where the Alcas were at, it was just a bucket that was turning and inside they would have gifts. And they would come in and they would take the gifts. And they did that several times and ultimately they landed and began interacting and contacting these Indians. And they were really encouraged and really excited and really felt this was a, a breakthrough to be able to, to really connect with and share the gospel with these people who had never heard the gospel before. Unfortunately, on January 6, 1956, Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, <laughs> Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint were killed. They were martyred by an Alka raiding party. It was international news. It was a tragedy. It was such a waste. Many people shook, shook their heads and felt this was, this was a waste of energy. Yet several years later, 
men, some of the wives and families of the men who died, not only were able to reach the Alcas, they really turned that tribe to Christ. Elizabeth Elliot actually had the opportunity to share the gospel with the man who killed her husband. This video I want to share with you narrates several statements from Jim Elliot's journal that I think capture what cost means and what Jesus was talking about when he talked to that scribe. Can we show the video? Our dreams are tawdry, showy, but cheap and of poor quality, when they are compared to the leading of God. They are not worthy of the aura of wonder we usually surround them with. God only doeth wonders. His hand can work nothing less. In my own experience, I have found that the most extravagant dreams of boyhood have not surpassed the great experience of being in God's will. I believe that nothing could be better. His will is always a bigger thing than we bargain for. But we must believe that whatever it involves, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. Father, let me loose my clutch on everything temporal, my life, my possessions. Lord, help me release the tension of my grasping hand. Open it as Christ's was opened to receive the nail of Calvary that I might be unleashed from all that binds me. God, saturate me with the oil of the Spirit, that I may be aflame. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Surely those who know the great compassionate heart of God must deny their own loves to share in the expression of His. Compelled by His call from the throne above, from those round about, and even from the damned souls below, I dare not stay home while others perish. It makes me boil when I think of the power we profess and the utter impotency of our action. We are spiritual pacifists in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon, and the tombs themselves are not colder than our well-fed churches. Their condemnation is written in the dust on their Bible covers. We are content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. Young men are going into professional fields because they don't feel called. We don't need a call. We need a kick in the pants. We need a stirring. May God send us forth because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I pray that the Lord will give you a hallowed daredevil spirit in lifting the sword of truth, consuming you with a passion that is called by the cultured citizen of Christendom, fanaticism, but known to God as that saintly madness that led his son through bloody sweat and hot tears to glory. How long dare we go on without passion and love? Not long, I pray, Lord Jesus, not long.
Following Jesus has great reward. But it is not without costs. In Luke 9, a parallel passage, it says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. The scribe needed to understand that there is great glory in following Jesus, but there is also great cost. The next man to encounter Jesus that day was a disciple, someone who was following him. We're not exactly sure how long this individual followed him, but let's read. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Wow, that's, that's pretty hard. <laughs> leave the dead to bury their own dead. What, what could this mean? Does it mean, literally, to, that, that, that you ignore your parents as they age? You see, in that time... A son's highest honor, highest responsibility was to to care for their parents. Especially as they age. Especially if they die to support their burial. Some commentators think that Jesus was referring to the year a father's bones would rest in a tomb. See, when during that time, um, when someone died, they would put their bones in a tomb and wait a year After the year, they would come and collect the bones and then they would rebury them. We're not really sure, but I think it's pretty clear, and I'm going to share some scripture with you, that it doesn't mean ignore your parents as they age. In Matthew 5, 18, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all has all is accomplished. Jesus is saying here, I'm not doing away with the law. Well, if that's true, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 16, the 5th commandment. Honor your father and your mother. As the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that in that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the first commandment after commandments about God. That's the first one. Honor your father and mother. I don't think it means ignore your parents. In fact, later on in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quotes the same commandment and rebukes the Pharisees and scribes because they allowed, um, their tradition allowed someone to not honor their father and mother by not providing for them. So this really can't, I don't think it means ignore your family or ignore your parents. What I think it means is it's hyperbole. Well, what's hyperbole? Again, linguist coming back, got to sort of do the linguist thing. Hyperbole is a figure of speech. Until heaven and earth, uh, um, it's an exaggeration. And it's used for emphasis or effect. As in, I could sleep for a year. I, I don't think anyone can sleep for a year. Or this book weighs a ton. 
I've not seen many books that weigh tons. So it's probably an an expression to try and make a point. Um, In rhetoric, an obvious exaggeration or extravagant statement or assertion not intended to be understood literally. So I think that Jesus is making a point. And I think when we look at the companion passage, there's a similar passage in Luke chapter 9 that adds one more interaction, one more encounter. Um, We get a little bit more of what Jesus is talking about. So in Luke 9... Um, verse 61, we read, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You, think, you see, I think it means what Jesus is saying here is following Jesus should not be a priority in your life. It should be the priority in life. It should be the thing that we want to follow. It means that we need to make obedience to God's command our primary purpose. In Matthew 6, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. We are to seek God's kingdom. We are to honor what we have for commitments. We are to seek and love God and love people. So to the second encounter the second person that Jesus said he wanted to highlight this idea that following me is not a priority in life it is the priority in life honoring your commitments honoring what you do honoring God loving people in this next video I'd like to share is another example of somebody who honored God through what they did and it's an example about what this might mean. It's a video about a decision made by a man named Robertson McQuilkin. He was a former missionary to Japan, started several churches in Japan, and for 22 years was the president of Columbia Bible College. Let's listen and, and uh, hear what um, this man decided to do in following God. Robertson McQuilkin was president for 22 years of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. His wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And when her condition worsened, he was faced with the difficult decision of either institutionalizing his wife or resigning to care for her. But when the the disease progressed, in 1990, he resigned as president uh, to care for his wife full-time. She stopped recognizing recognizing him in 1993. Uh, And then on September 20th, 2003, 10 years later, Muriel McQuilkin died at the age of 81. We put together some old scrapbook pictures with a segment of his resignation speech to the student body at Columbia Bible College. Uh, It seems in our culture that many men and women will take the easy way way out of difficult circumstances and just start looking for the exit in their marriages. Well, I wanted you to hear from this man a different story. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped becomes very fearful, 
sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Dr. McQuilkin wrote a book called The Promise Kept to describe that experience. He left a college where he was president, the highest level to follow a promise and a vow he had made. Forty years earlier, that was the cost. That was the price he had to pay to follow Jesus. So what is God asking you to commit to? And are you ready to pay the cost? Is he asking you to follow him? To give your life to him? Is he asking you to follow in obedience by reading his word? Sharing your faith? Praying? Serving? Giving of your time, talent, your treasure? Is he asking you to love others? Is he asking you to commit to your marriage, to your family, to your church? What is God asking you to commit to? This is what Jesus was doing to these two men who he encountered. He is challenging them to ask themselves, what are you willing to commit to? Do you understand the cost? Think about these two questions as the worship team comes up and let uh, the lyrics of the words, or Stephanie comes up, as the lyrics of, just listen to the lyrics of the word, of the uh, song, and these two questions. What is God asking you to commit to? And are you willing to pay the cost? Let me pray. Father, you are a great God. You hold all things together, and by you, nothing's been made. You've provided heaven for us. Yet, you've asked us to follow you and following you has a price. But you paid for, our, for us. We were bought for a price. So God, I ask, as we listen to these words and the lyrics, Father, you would bring to us what you would want us to commit to, what you would want us to do.